As I look out on the uh, American church, as many of you do, maybe you've been around to a number of churches, you look at what's happening in the evangelical church more broadly, and really has been happening for decades, it appears churches, many churches, this is unfair to some, but many churches are working overtime to try to fit in with the world, to what is politically correct, to what is in vogue, what is faddish in terms of spiritual things. Um, they just uh, appear like their, their ministries and their, and their uh, churches, which have so much potential, are just heading in the wrong direction. They're good people there, but their philosophy is trying to fit in to draw people in. It's a compromise. It's a calculated compromise in areas that maybe they feel they're not compromising, but it gets more people in, more people, they can do better good if they get more people in. And that appears to me what is going on in the church, broadly speaking. But when the world is running further and further away from God, uh, as is happening over the last couple of decades in our culture, the church needs to be anchored, not moving with them. They need to be anchored in truth and not be blowing along with the winds of the day. I think now more than ever, we need to show a distinct identity. Would you agree? We need to be a distinct people of God. That's what God says we are. He says that we're people called to his name and called to his service. He's a holy God. He wants us set apart for him. And so the church needs to be that way. He doesn't change. So if society changes, he's not moving. So if we're his people, we should be anchored to him. We need to be distinct, sharply distinct from the world, from a world of Christ rejectors. We need to be different. We're told our citizenship is in heaven. We read that in our scripture reading this morning, Philippians 3 and uh, verse 20. If our citizenship is in heaven, then that means that if you're a believer in Jesus, you are a foreigner here. You are. You're a foreigner. If you ever said, you know, you wonder what it would be like to be a foreigner, you already know what it's like. You're a foreigner. You're not at home down here. This is not really our home. Foreigners are supposed to be easy to spot. You know, they come like, oh, that guy's from out of town. You could tell, oh, that guy's from, you know, wherever. That's what it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be easy to spot. And when we get together, it's supposed to be even easier to spot. They talk a different language. They have a different dialect. The way they act is different. There's a whole different culture put them all together, the differences are only accentuated. It's, a, with Christians, a holy culture. It's a culture that's oriented towards a holy God. It's not a culture that's oriented towards money or oriented towards pleasure. It's a culture that's oriented towards a God who has promised us that if we suffer in this life and live for him in this life, he will promise us, he is guaranteeing us so much more. So when we gather together, like we're doing this morning, and we're a people, we're gathered here together, there really should be something distinct about the way we talk. It should be different from a gathering that would be out there. The way we talk, the things we talk about, the mannerisms we have towards one another, the way we prefer one another, that should be something that is different. We're oriented towards God. We're here to praise him, not ourselves. We're not here to build up our self-esteem. We're to build up Christ's glory. That's what we're about. We're a distinct culture. And when we are a distinct culture, and when we do act distinct, and we're not afraid of being different, That's when God uses us. That's when we have a powerful testimony in the world. It's interesting, so many churches these days are speaking of becoming relevant to the culture. But if you become like the culture, you're not relevant to them as something different because you are them. If you want to be relevant to them, show them a different way. Show them an entirely different way of living. Do you see? 
That's how you are relevant to them. That's how we would be relevant to them. So today, I turn to a passage and have you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, a passage that's challenged me, it's humbled me, it's guided me. And I know it can do the same for you as well. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. We will be getting back to the book of Acts, but I just wanted to preach this one message. Um, I've had a hard week too, and so this is one I preached 10 weeks ago. I mean, 10 weeks ago, 10 years ago. 2009, I think it was. And um, it was a, a real blessing to be meditating on it back back then, and so it gave me a, a really good meditation this week as well. First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, just two verses, I'll read it for you. Beloved, Peter writes, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. I think I preached this for a uh, Father's Day sermon originally, and so I know we have a men's retreat. There's a lot of application for the men here, but there's also a lot for the ladies as well. It's a pastoral message. Um, You see, Peter was a pastor. Look, Look how he starts. He says, beloved, and that kind of marks this off as a distinct paragraph, a distinct section in Peter's letter. Peter was directly addressing his readers here, and his readers were from Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, as the salutation of the epistle indicated. And he addresses them so he can exhort them to apply what he just finished teaching them. We're jumping into the middle of this letter here, but if you look in the previous doctrinal section in verses four through 10, you see that he had a lot of teaching about who they are as a distinct people. I can't survey the entire letter this morning, but in many ways, these two verses, kind of in the middle of the letter, these two verses summarize much of what Peter writes in the entire letter. The exhortation to abstain from fleshly lusts in verse 11 echoes backwards. If you look backwards in chapter 1 and verse 2, it says that we were chosen to be obedient and to be sanctified. Also in chapter 1 and verses 14 and 15, it says as obedient children, we're to be obedient and holy in our behavior. In chapter 1, verse 22, it talks about how we have had our souls purified. So we're now being told and we're being exhorted, abstain from fleshly lust. That's verse 11. Verse 12 has a second exhortation. It says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And that kind of acts as an introduction to what is still to come in the letter. Later, the wives will be told, if you have a disobedient husband, you can win them by your good behavior. Workers are told in the workplace, if it's hard and you suffer there, keep your behavior excellent, and they can be one to the Lord. Believers are told to live rightly under oppressive governments, because as we do that, we are a distinct people, and we can, we can win people to the gospel. And so this passage kind of looks back to summarize holiness and obedience, and it looks forward to talk about excellent behavior and how that behavior, when it's seen by unbelievers, makes an impact. And it addresses us as foreigners. As foreigners ourselves, we would do very well to heed these two pastoral exhortations, to be different from unbelievers. You should not aspire to be like some unbeliever in Hollywood or favorite singer or comedian That should not be in your heart. You should not be trying to be like that. You should be trying to be like the models that we have before us 
that walk in Christ. So let's just consider these two exhortations. First, to be different by abstaining from fleshly lusts in verse 11, and second, to be different by our excellent behavior in verse 12. So we'll start with the first one, verse 11. Be different by abstaining from fleshly lusts. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. We believers, as strangers in this world, must abstain from some things. And some of those things are damaging. They're destructive. And here they're called lusts, fleshly lusts. These are lusts that are centered in our unredeemed bodies. The body's not evil, but our bodies are not yet redeemed. They're not transformed. And so there's a principle of evil at work. And then Paul calls it sarks, translated flesh. Peter uses similar terminology. And how important this injunction is. There are things going on in our bodies. We come here in our spirit and we, we pour out our praise to God, but then we go home, we still have to deal with the unredeemed flesh, right? So it's an important exhortation. And because of that, Peter addresses this not with, you know, hitting them over the head, but some love and concern. With one word, he, he expresses his affection, beloved, agape toy, those who are loved. And what follows is meant to to care for them. He's a caring elder, to appeal to them as the flock of God. This is something that's harmful to you, and I don't want you to be involved in it. Uh, By the way, later in chapter 5 and verse 1, Peter's going to call himself a fellow elder. So he considers himself someone that's been charged with watching over the flock. Indeed, isn't this what Jesus told him, right? After the resurrection, he said, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, tend my flock, feed my lambs. So this is what he's doing. So Peter writes, I urge you, to abstain from fleshly lust. The King James Version has, I beseech you. I like that. The Greek verb is parakalo. It has the sense of someone that's called along someone else who needs help. You ever been needy and you need a lot of help and you wish there'd be someone right there to help you? Like, that's what it is. Someone who comes right alongside them, kind of grabs the arm and says, I'm going to help you now. That's parakalo, called alongside to help them. So he's kind of walking hand in hand with his beloved ones. That's what Peter's doing. Beloved, he's saying, I'm there with you. I have the same unredeemed flesh as you do. I'm walking with you and I'm urging you to do what I've learned to do. I'm exhorting you to walk this way. Now don't think that just because Peter is gentle that he's a weak man. This also has a force to it. I think we, could, we would say that Peter's not saying, hey, I got some great advice for you. It's take it or leave it kind of thing. No. This is something that if you don't do it, he's telling you there's going to be harm to you. There's a waging war against your soul. I think, stepping back and thinking about what he's doing in a pastoral manner, this is magnificent, what he's doing. He's an excellent pastor here. He's motivating people, and he's not, he's not doing it by just a direct confrontation. Sometimes that has to happen. Sometimes there's sheep that won't listen to anything, and you just have to directly confront them. But a lot of pastoring is just coming alongside them and saying... You're stepping into some stuff you shouldn't be stepping into. This is going to cause danger. And then putting up with that again and again. Those of you that are small group leaders and you're doing discipling or counseling others, you know that this is necessary. There's a lot of patience. There's a lot of bearing with people. Listen, I know about this from personal experience, you can say to them. Pay heed to what I'm urging you to do because I've, I've messed up here before. I know what I'm talking about from personal experience. That's kind of how Peter is for us. And before he tells them what they are to do, he reminds them who they are. That's great pastoral advice as well. 
In chapter 1, verse 1, he addressed them, those who reside as aliens. And then it goes on to list all the different provinces. You are a bunch of aliens is what he's saying. Here he repeats that truth. The first word aliens indicates people who live in a foreign land. That's what it means. They don't have the rights of citizens. Par oikus. Aliens, foreigners. The New King James Version translates it sojourners. I like that a little better, don't you? Than aliens. I don't want to think of myself as a little green man running around here or something like that. I'm a sojourner. That's really nice. That has something to it. Some gravitas. I'll take that. The second term is, that's translated strangers is par epidemus. It indicates temporary residence in a place that's not their home. These two designations really are synonyms. I like, again, the New King James. It calls them pilgrims. I like that. Sojourners and pilgrims. Sounds so much more noble, does it not? Doubling these nouns together is just for emphasis. So what is he saying? He's saying, you're foreigners. You're way foreigners. You're not like these people at all. Remember what John wrote? He said, they don't even understand us in 1 John 3, right? Unbelievers don't even know you because they didn't know him. They can't even figure you out. They, they, they think you're evil, but you're doing something good. They're, they're all upside down, and they think we're upside down. Abraham sojourned in the land of promise, remember? He was, inherited, he was promised all that land, but he didn't really get any of it yet. It wasn't really his land yet. That's kind of what we are. We're walking in a land we've been promised the whole world, and yet it's not really ours. We wouldn't really fit in yet. We are in a Christ-rejecting world. This is a rebellious world. The reason why the gospel is being given 2,000 years to go out to all of the tribes and all the countries in any form that it can is giving all the people's groups an opportunity to surrender to a king who's coming from outer space. (laughs) And every eye will see him. And when he lands, he's taken over. It's an invasion. And all the world will come together against him. You know, you know all the movies, everyone comes together when the aliens attack, you know, and the Russians all of a sudden like the Chinese and the Chinese like the Americans. That's going to happen. They're all going to like each other and they're going to hate this king. His name is Jesus Christ. He's giving them time to surrender. He's sending people out in front of them. That's us telling people not, hey, Jesus is a neat idea, but hey, Jesus is the king. You need to repent of your sins now before he comes and wipes you out. That's the message. We're in a Christ-rejecting world. They don't love our king. They don't bow to his commandments. They mock him. Jesus actually allows them to mock him. He said, you can mock me all you want, but when it comes to blaspheming the Holy Spirit, watch out. That's an eternal sin, remember? We really only fit in a different politic, a coming kingdom. We're not really that good at democracy. We're all subjects of a king. That's why we're told in chapter 1, verse 13, we fix our hope completely on the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's that word completely that's kind of tough there, right? We want to hope in Jesus' coming and then we want to have all of our other hopes, but they, they don't always work, right? And then we get disappointed. But if we hope there, you'll never be disappointed. At the second coming, there's going to be a holy invasion. This king is returning to take what is rightfully his. That's what the whole book of Revelation is about. He's able to come and take the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. Who's that? God. He's the only one found worthy. At first, John was crying because no one was found worthy. Jesus steps up. He takes the scroll, and he begins to break the seals, and, and the world begins to be prepared by the wrath of the Lamb for his arrival. 
the end of the book of Revelation, he arrives on a white horse and he slays all of his enemies and he sets up his thousand-year reign on earth and he raises from the dead the saints to reign with him. Satan and Satan's people have no rights to this world anymore. Christ will return with power in the sky, visible to all. He will destroy all of the enemies. He will make this world transform. Then it will be our home. But not now, not yet. Now we are sojourners and pilgrims. I'm sticking with that. Here we have in Scripture a magnificently practical and powerful exhortation. In one short exhortation, Peter captures a lot of what the Christian life is about. Did you know there's a negative side to Christianity? There is a thou shalt not in the Christian life. There is a boundary that is to be drawn, and you're not to step over it. Otherwise, you invite the chastening hand of God. There are things we must abstain from. Contrary to those who misrepresent Jesus, you know, they say Jesus was a friend of sinners, and they mean it like he really enjoyed hanging out with sinners. That wasn't the point. The point was the sinners that came to him knew he was calling them to repentance. He didn't hang out with them. They came to him. He was a teacher. He didn't act like them. He was trying to get them to act like him. Jesus did not engage in every lifestyle. He did not experiment with sin. Jesus abstained from many things. And you know what? It did not hurt him. It did not make him unhappy. The verb abstain... As a present middle infinitive, it can be translated literally hold yourself off from something. Keep yourself away from something. And since it's a present tense infinitive, it means you you can't just do it one time. You're going to be continuously holding yourself off from this. Abstaining once won't do. God here is exhorting a continuous abstaining from harmful things. Listen, if poison is bad to drink today, I'm guessing it's going to be bad to drink tomorrow. I'm not too smart, but I'm just guessing. That's probably true. This has a lot to do, obviously, with Galatians 5, where it says one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Abstaining is a word frequent in ethical exhortations in the Bible. The same Greek word is used in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. It doesn't say abstain from sex. Sex is a gift to the human race, to abstain from sexual perversion. Sex is powerful. And so it's easy to be led astray with that because it feels so good. And there's so much deception in immorality. But it's to be this direction and enjoyed. Drink all you want this direction, not that direction, you see. We are to abstain from all sexual immorality, adultery, fornication, pornography, homosexuality, any perversion of the gift of sex. There is a right way to use that gift. There is a wrong way to use it. We think we know better. We don't. The world acts one way. We are to act another way. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from every form of evil. That means every kind of evil. Don't be selective. Well, I'm not going to get drunk, but I'm going to beat this guy up. Or vice versa. I'm not going to beat this guy up, but I'm going to go get drunk. Every form of evil we abstain from. God does not want us abstaining from good things, by the way. 
We shouldn't come up with our own rules in conservative churches and say people can't do this, can't do that, can't do that. God didn't say that. God gives us a lot of freedom. That's a precious freedom we are to have. So be protected. Christ died for our freedom. Sometimes there's wiser and less wise things to do, but we're not to tell people, now you have to abstain from this. Women, you're not allowed to wear this. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do those. are man-made rules. Some of those rules are self-imposed. That's fine. You're trying to keep yourself from a temptation. That's wise. But as a, as a rule goes, we don't put commands where God doesn't. Otherwise, we turn into Pharisees because that's exactly what they did. They came up with their own rules to surround God's rules so we wouldn't get anywhere near breaking God's rules by those rules, but that took away freedom and joy as well. And God's way too wise to give too many rules. 1 Timothy 4.3 warns about false teachers who forbid marriage. See, as Christianity got going, they thought, well, if you really are, really are serious about Jesus, you never get married. You just marry the church, right? And so the nuns and the monks and all that stuff got started. No, 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 no. Who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Now, trust me, I'm abstaining from a lot of foods right now. It's not really by choice. I would love to eat the things that God has made and grown. They're good. Peter is not urging unnecessary binding restrictions in this. Why am I saying all of this? So that you understand what God does say, abstain from this thing. He really knows what he's talking about. Fleshly lusts, with the article, the fleshly lusts, literally. The kind of fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Lusts is epithumia. It's actually a neutral term. It's not a bad term. Um, there are good, there are good uh, desires. A lust is simply a very strong desire. Unfortunately, most of our strong desires are bad, so lust has that connotation. But we're not Buddhists. We don't believe all desire chains us to something and, and nirvana is to rid ourselves of all desire. We're not Buddhists. We separate between good desire and bad desire. And we can pursue good desire but not bad desire. We're Christians. There's nothing wrong with having very strong desires or attachments to some things. That's what love is. I wish, I wish some of you had stronger passions and stronger desires to accomplish something for Christ, to do something more with your life, to give something more, to have more passion for that. That's a strong desire. But that's a sermon for another day. It is the fleshly lusts we are to abstain from. 2 Timothy 2.2 echoes this. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue and pursue and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Those are strong desires, see, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. It's very important to understand that the term flesh Peter uses does not refer directly to the body. Peter's not saying that bodily desire itself is sinful and therefore we must restrain ourselves from enjoying food or enjoying rest or anything like that. No. God gave us rest to enjoy and he gave us food to enjoy and he gave sex to be enjoyed in an intimate relationship and the bond of a covenant, a lifelong covenant called marriage. God designed our bodies with feelings in them and there's feelings of pleasure. It's true our bodies are somewhat wacky now with different things that have happened, but he designed it for pleasure. Our body is not evil, but the body has evil desire in it. Sinful desire is taking the good things that God has provided for our enjoyment and exaggerating their importance and letting them become these, these incredible 
desires and lusts where we're empty and we have to grab at them and grab at them and grab them to satisfy ourselves. And they grow bigger and bigger in importance rather than just enjoying them, saying, thank you, God, for that. It's like, I have to have more. I demand more. That's what a lust is. And what happens to people that demand more and more drugs? Everybody knows that. They ruin their lives, right? Oh, that was so good. I have to have more. And then we say they're addicted. What they're really doing is they just, they're not heeding what Peter said. They're going whole hog after the good feeling or the drunkenness or the pornography or whatever it is. I deserve more. I get more. It's for me. What about me? It's a lust. It becomes a God, right? It becomes your God. These two words, fleshly and lusts, are used in Ephesians 2, 3. It says, we formerly walked in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. The mind has its desires and lusts, too. False teachers use lusts to draw people into accept their arrogant words, so 2 Peter 2, 18 says. Galatians 5, 17 says, if we walk by the Spirit, we'll not carry out the desires of the flesh, right? So we have battle gear. We have been fortified to counteract those pleasures, those exaggerated desires in our body. When the body is saying, I want, I want, I want, the spirit says, no, no, this is how you get love, joy, peace. And in Galatians 5, it actually says they're warring against each other, aren't they? It says you can never really do what you please. Here, in this sense, we're always longing for something better because if we act holy, there's the flesh saying, you've done enough of that good stuff for church. Come on over to my side now. And if you go over to that side, the Holy Spirit's like, what are you doing? You feel, you feel guilty, right? So you can't win either way. That's the point that Galatians 5 says, and that's why we're longing for a resurrection. So we have a, a, a born-again spirit, and we have a, a resurrected body, and now they're put back together again, and we're like, this is how it's supposed to be all the time. Say, why doesn't the Lord do it for us right now? Because <laughs> he wants us struggling and, and in the midst of a foreign world shining his lights. We'll get to that. I love that promise in Galatians 5, though. Don't miss it. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So you think, I can never overcome this. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, you can twist and change that to be something weaker, but I'm reading that promise the way it is. So that's an important promise there in Galatians 5. Now, notice next it says these... Lusts wage war against the soul. These fleshly, sinful exaggerations of nice things that God has given to us wage war against your soul. You have a soul. It's a good thing. You don't want someone to wage war against it. You certainly don't want them to beat you. You want your soul to be strong. These lusts inside of you are attacking you, attacking your soul. The aim is to capture the believer and make him useless to God. These lusts constitute soldiers seeking to bring down your soul. James 4.1 says that they're pleasures that wage war in your bodily members. That's true, they're waging war in the bodily members, but, but Peter says they're waging war against your soul. Hmm. The fight is against your soul. Do you value your soul? The word soul can be meant like soul or spirit inside of you, or it can be meant, sometimes it means your entire life. That might be what Peter's talking about here. 
We even use that uh, in English. We'll say, that poor soul over there, we meant that poor person over there, you know? It's sort of meant in that way where the soul means all of you and not just your insides. So it could be translated, your lusts wage war against you, against yourselves. In uh, chapter 2, verse 25, it refers to Jesus as the shepherd and guardian of your souls, not just your inside, but he's your shepherd and guardian. He, he shepherds and he is the guardian of all of you. In chapter 4, verse 19 of the letter, it says Christians entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Our whole selves we entrust to a faithful creator. So Peter's teaching that these lusts attack you, your life, the very core and heart of who you are. Lusts always look like they're going to feel good, don't they? But they are treacherous little things. They're lying, conniving, perverted desires. They want to express themselves. They want to rear their ugly heads. And when they do, then they ram a sword right through your heart. You think you're getting something. You think you're getting something. You're getting attacked. You're getting damaged. And they harm you. They bring you pain. They destroy your intimacy in marriage or your future marriage. They make you feel like a fool. They bring guilt. They bring despair. Obviously, Peter's saying, hold off from these. Don't let the door open. Don't let them have one foot inside because it's not going to be one foot, right? I'm just going to give in a little. It's not going to be giving in a little. So where do I draw the line in my mind when I start to entertain it or when this starts happening? Right at the very beginning, don't let them in the door. There are many believers right now Maybe some of you that are so filled with sinful desire, you're not of too much use to our Lord. Battles are raging, but you're about your comfort. You're about other lusts. You have little desire to do the will of God. It doesn't even seem attractive to you. Do you know why? Because you're indulging in gaming all day long. I guess that would be the lust of the eyes or mind. How do you follow what the Holy Spirit wants you to do when you're indulging in lusts? Any fire that gets going, your lust just douses it. Shh. There it's gone. Why do you think after you go home, you hear a seminar, you hear a sermon, you come to church, you've heard a sermon, you've read a good book, and you're all fired up for the Lord. And then by the, by the evening time, you're, you're grumpy. You're... you're you don't have any desire to do anything for the Lord. It's been quickly quenched because you didn't guard yourself. You were too loose. You were too open to suggestion from outside sources. Your flesh, you know, you serve the Lord on Sunday, a few hours. Whew, that was hard. Your flesh says, I'm tired. I deserve a break. I deserve a break from those kids. I'm going to plop down in front of that TV. I'm going to indulge in food. It's my time. Online, I'm going to go covet things. Woo, woo, look at all that. I'll get a little drink to relax my mind, maybe a second, maybe a third. I'm going to go play on the internet, see what I can see. I did my church thing this morning. I did my religious duty. Now it's time for me, the big me. That's the monster talking, the me monster. That's not your spirit. You must remember at that point in time, you're an alien. Sorry, sojourner. 
You don't belong here. You have to act differently. If you give in to these lusts, they'll harm you. The lust of sexual desire wages war against the soul. It hurts your ability to be open and intimate with your spouse. You relate to others by lusting rather than loving. You aren't learning how to love. You're learning how to take, take, take. It hinders your walk with God. It hinders your friendships with others. The lust of drunkenness wages war against the soul. It seeks to be the comfort that the Holy Spirit has already said he would be for you. That's why it says in Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, right? The lust of comfort and laziness wages war against your soul. It keeps you from learning to serve others joyfully, accomplish great things for God, and feel the energy of the Spirit that comes when you've sacrificed for others. The lust of gluttony leads to bodily disease. It keeps you from the joy of self-control. It always has you excuse-making. What a meditation this one verse makes. If you would daily work through the effects of lust on your soul, God would open your eyes to how evil and harmful they are. Quit making excuses. Start abstaining. The second exhortation is in verse 12, and it is similar, but it is to keep your behavior excellent among the natives. Keep your behavior excellent among the the Gentiles, the natives. This is really a continuation from verse 11. Having your behavior among the nations right is kind of how the Young's literal translation has it. That participle, though, takes on the force of a command. There's an inward battle that's going on, the lust of the flesh, but it results in an external behavior that is seen, an external uh, way of living that is good and excellent. Behavior is... Uh, conduct, anastrophe is the Greek term. It, it means your day-by-day living, how you go about conducting yourself. This is what other people see in you. They don't see the inward lusts. You feel that, you see that, you feel that, you, you battle with that. But then what is your behavior on the outside? That's anastrophe. The visible effects of a man's life are important also. How he lives, how he conducts himself, how he behaves. There is a call for something good here. There's a call for excellence here. The participle keeping is in the present tense, and and it can mean preserving your behavior or holding to a certain form of behavior is the idea. And do it among the Gentiles. That means the unbelieving Gentiles. What does that mean? That means the Christians are living a life in this world, and God expects their lives to be watched, to be observed. That was expected. Otherwise, God would take us out of the world, right? But he left us here. Why? To be seen. Our behavior is seen. And that's why the behavior of Christians has to be excellent. You see? That's why we're down here. That's why we were left. Excellent is kalein. It means good, but in the sense of morally noble, good conduct. Other people look at your actions. They, they listen to your words. They see your habits, and they say, That guy is reliable. That guy, well, in modern day, they might say, well, he's classy, you know. They say he's classy. They won't say he's righteous or holy. They'll they'll say he's, that guy's classy, you know. He's kind of a good guy. They would call it good. They would describe it that way. Even unbelievers know somewhat of what good behavior is, right? At least the more reflective ones. They can see that there's certain vices that are harmful to society, and then they see you. You have self-control. When everyone else was bad-mouthing the boss, there you were with excellent behavior. 
I could tell you didn't like what the boss did, but your, your lips were zipped. Good for you. Excellent behavior. Yes. Other people were rushing to indulge in, the, in watching the, the video where someone's taking their clothes off, and you're like, I'm not going anywhere near that thing. You're off over there. You're different. You're all by your little lonesome over there. Great. That's exactly where you need to be. Not like halfway in, like, ha, 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 oh, 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 <laughs> you're compromising. Just walk the other way. Hey, where were you with such and such? Yeah, I didn't want to go anywhere yet. Are you kidding me? Why not? Because I love my wife. Because I love my wife. And I know there's evil in me, and I'm not trying to be holier than you, but I'm called to a higher standard. I'm a Christian. Really? That's weird. <laughs> yeah, can I tell you a little bit more about it? You say yes or no, but you, you're different, see? I'm not saying we're to be Pharisees again, overly concerned with how we look on the outside. How do I look? I look good? I look good. Nobody looking good. Now I'll be bad. You know, I'll be bad. Nobody looking. No, that's not the point. But we're being put out there to be seen. Colossians 4, 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. 1 Corinthians 10, 32, give no offense either to the Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Be careful how you behave yourself, see? 1 Thessalonians 4, 12, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Uh, work hard, pay your bills. They watch that also, right? Pay your taxes, pay your bills, get to work on time, right? Do the things you're supposed to do and maybe a little more as well. When Christians do not behave well, it brings shame to the church. It brings shame to the word we preach in church. Ultimately, it brings shame to Jesus. Notice the end, the reason why our behavior must be excellent among the Gentiles. Look at the end there. We'll close with this. So that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, you know, you know they always get, you know, the Christians are... Christians are bad. Christians are this. Christians are that. And they're slandering you. And then they look at you. They haven't met a real Christian, right? Then they look at you. They meet you. And you're like, well, you're not so bad. So that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds. They can't see your faith. They can't understand your motives. But on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What's the day of visitation? When Christ comes to visit the planet again. It's talking about his second coming. When he comes back, when he comes to visit, when he comes in full glory and power, they will be found on the side of those glorifying God and praising him. Why? Because that guy watched your behavior in the workplace, in the neighborhood, somewhere else, and they they wanted to slander you and they wanted to laugh at you and they mocked at you and one day things weren't so good in their life and they knew they couldn't turn to all their other idiots that they had as friends, so they came to you the wise man, the wise woman, and said, hey, tell me, what, what was this about? And you shared the gospel, and they got saved. That's how it works. That's how it worked with me. I was with a bunch of idiots in college. Trust me, these were pure definitional idiots. <laughs> and we were having a debate on religion, and I was the guy defending Christianity. I knew nothing about Christianity. I was raised Methodist. We don't know anything about Christianity. <laughs> At least up north. And this guy walks in the room. His name was Tom. I was 18. He was 23. And I had watched him. He was like just a good guy, solid guy, you know, mature. When you're 18, someone that's 23 seems mature. And he came in. He leaned against the wall and he said nothing. And people are like, the Buddhist guy's talking and the atheist guy's talking. I'm like, nah, that's not right. Nah, that's not right. And he's just sitting there quietly and he has this confidence. I said, something about that guy. 
I went over to them. I said, I got to ask them some questions. They're going on, wah, 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 wah. I asked them a question. I don't remember what it was. And I don't remember what he said, but I remember what he said. Tom, you're either in God's family or you're in Satan's family. Slow mo going backwards, you know, because I knew exactly where I fit. And that night I got saved. And all he did was act with good behavior. Good behavior. Makes a difference. What am I doing in my life? You might ask. What am I doing? Go to work every day, you know. I do this, I do that. Nobody watches. People are watching. Sometimes you have no idea who's watching you. They're watching you. And it's good they're watching you. They can't see me. They're not coming in here to look at me. They're going to look at you. You have a mission. You have a ministry. Please don't ruin it by giving in to your lusts all the time. Don't ruin it. Your behavior won't be excellent if you're giving in to the lusts. You say, but pastor, I've tried to stop. Well, then this is what you do. You get accountability. That's why we have church. I don't want to tell anybody I have lusts. Are you kidding? They have lusts too. What do you think? There's a secret here? I have lusts. No kidding, so do I. Can we help out? Yes. This is what we're going to do when we're tempted. We're going to text each other. We're going to call each other. It's what some of the men's ministry is about, right? Why are you hiding in the shadows when you can come out in the light? You think we're going to throw eggs at you? You think we're going to bring you up here and say, here is, you know, Doug Baldrige, the sinner. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Just pick it on you, Doug. <laughs> we all know we're sinners, every last one of us. So use the body of Christ, to spur you on. Ladies, same thing. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for this exhortation from Peter and from your Holy Spirit. May we take it to heart. May our men, especially as they head out on this retreat, take it to heart. And thank you, Lord, for our baptism service now and just excite our hearts as we hear testimony. Amen.